0: All right. I, am, I love moving. I think you probably do, too. We'll see. But I seem to always be moving. My wife jokes with me that even if I'm not in one spot, I'm actually still moving. My legs are bouncing. I'm, I'm going. I've actually worked for two moving companies uh, in my life. I like road trips uh, with the windows down, right? roller coasters, hiking, biking, paddling. God has given me a lot of energy, and I need to go to bed tired So it takes a lot of work. So movement is on the menu. Some of you are like me and you love to move. Some of you prefer to sit still and watch the world move around you. Some of you prefer to be still and have nothing moving any of you who have been reading Ezekiel, uh, we're probably surprised and mostly confused, I would think, by the opening scenes of movement in the book. Wheels whirling, chariot wings flying, looking around, the gleaming throne chariot in motion. This is a jarring start to the book, and it's hard To read. The first time I read Ezekiel, I was 24 years old. I had to sketch what I was reading just to follow along since it's so otherworldly. It was my first time through the Bible. I had no idea what I was reading. Fortunately, the Bible Project is very creative. Today, you're going to hear a lot about movement, and I hope you'll rejoice with me in this hearing how God once again moves toward, with, and in His people. In case you're not entirely caught up, let's just take two minutes and catch us all up. Ezekiel comes on the scene as a prophet during the time of Jeremiah, which when he's prophesying to Judah before the final fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Ezekiel was a priest living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on Jerusalem. That's 2 Kings 24. That's about 597 B.C. They took the first wave of prisoners, including Ezekiel, and they hauled them off to Babylon in captivity, exile from Israel. The maps above show the route that the people would have had to have taken to walk the 900 miles from Israel on the left to Babylon on the right over the fertile crescent. At the opening of Ezekiel, it's five years after that first wave of Israelites are exiled from Babylon, where Ezekiel is sitting by an irrigation canal. It's Ezekiel's 30th birthday, the day Ezekiel would have been installed as a priest over Israel had he been there. Ezekiel has his first vision. His final vision is 22 years later, so it's a long span. Why do we read Ezekiel? Because God never leaves his people. Ezekiel shows us in rare form just how committed God is to his people. The lengths, the breadths, the heights and depths God is willing to go. He's committed to go for you and me. And if you're anything like me, you need God to go deep for you. Into the pit and the mire to pull you out. As far as the east and the west, which never stop, you need him to go there for you. If you're here this morning and you are a sinner, this book is for you. If you need mercy and grace, this book is for you. If you think you're pretty good, you kind of got things handled, you're not sure what the big deal is, this book is for you. If you're sure God could not possibly love you after all the things that you've done, this book is for you is for you. If you don't think there is a God, or maybe there is, but he doesn't really care, or he doesn't, isn't good, well, then this book is for you. So today in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see a lot of movement, and it gets worse before it gets better. Let's read first in Ezekiel 8, verse 6. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will still see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. That's the court of the temple. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, "'Son of man, you have seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures.'" For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Uh, It was a God that they placed in the temple in Jerusalem. And verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold... At the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And then he said to me, "'Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger?' Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear him. This is a lot, right? But guess what? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I said that we're gonna see a lot of movement in Ezekiel. So first, let's focus on moving in. We see in Ezekiel 8, the Israelites move their idol worship into the temple. This is the worst thing that we've seen so far in the Old Testament. And we saw the high priest Aaron make a golden calf for the people at the base of Mount Sinai was, while Moses was up top, up top getting the law from the Lord. We've seen judges and kings do monstrous deeds of idolatry, even full-on adultery and murder and collusion with other nations because they did not trust Yahweh. All that was bad, but we've not seen it this bad yet. Why would this in chapter 8 grieve God? He gives Ezekiel and us four scenes to depict exactly why this would grieve him so. I didn't read it, but verse 6 commented on it. The first scene is verses 3 and 5 of chapter 8, the image of jealousy. This is a statue that the people have set up, most likely Canaanite God, Asherah, right outside the temple. And this provokes God to jealousy. The problems are consistently and constantly calling the people out. God is calling them out of their whoredom is the word that he uses. Uh, That's chapter 6 where that hits really hard. Uh, This week we read chapter 16 and 23. If you're circling that word, you're circling a lot of that word over and over. God will not share his worship with other gods. It rightfully belongs to him. So he talks about it like a spouse cheating on another spouse. Israel is cheating on Yahweh. The next scene, verse 12, that we read has the 70 elders offering incense to idols in a secret chamber. And here's the contrast that Ezekiel is making. In Exodus 24, it was 70 elders of Israel who received this unique privilege of seeing God. And later, they were each given the same spirit, as Moses. In Numbers 11, 70 elders. Don't miss it. God is specifically giving Ezekiel the vision of this full circle betrayal by Israel of Yahweh and these new 70 elders. Why did they do this? They felt like God had abandoned them. They thought it might help them out. In the third scene, the women are weeping for Tammuz, a Babylonian ritual here in verse 14 that was supposed to help with fertility. Then the fourth scene has us getting closer to the holy of holies within the temple. The 25 men, verse 16, turn their backs on the temple on God's holy presence and prostrate themselves to the east in worship of the sun. They're not bowing down to the living God, seeking his face. They are worshiping the created order, the sun. In these four brief scenes, we see the nature of the sins of Jerusalem. The commentator, Ian Duguid, makes the point that their sin extends from outside the city gate to the inner courtyard of the temple. It involves men and women, 70 elders, all symbolic of the leadership of the whole people. It includes idolatry. All of these things that they've imported from the nations that surround them. These gods involve men and women, animals, celestial bodies. Good says, this is a unified, universalized religion, the ultimate multi-faith worship service. From God's point of view, this is one abomination piled upon another. It's god's people were in God's temple using it to worship false gods. Now, bear with me. This is no true comparison, but just think how furious Clemson would be in Death, if Death Valley were filled with fans dressed in garnet and black from head to toe, chanting cheers, singing praise of cocky and the general, the new name for Sir Big Spur, right, if you were following along this week, worshiping there right on the field, maybe even sacrificing the tiger and the cub on the 50-yard line, like actually killing them. Israel rejected the God they were called to worship. They chose a different God. They actively pursued those gods in the place of the holiest of Yahweh. Culture today, as it always has been, is pluralistic, right? It's practical polytheism. It's a mix-and-match, whatever-you-want approach. Again, Ian Duguid. The Bible urges us to consider that the choice facing us is not between equally valid methods of expressing our spirituality, but between truth and falsehood, between worshiping the God who created us or bowing down to abominations that are not God's at all. What are you tempted to bow down and worship? Maybe good things, right? Like your God given talents or your family. Maybe pleasure. Or success. I think we see it in the polls. An overwhelming number of Americans believe in God's existence and in the Bible as his word, yet they never go to church. They never read the Bible. And that might be you. This could very easily be you, even though you are sitting in church at this moment very early on a Sunday morning. Perhaps you and I, we created a religion to fit our own preferences. Could it be? I think we have to ask ourselves that. The movement in these passages and in Ezekiel doesn't stop there. The people moved in, bringing their idol worship into the temple, and then something even more shocking happens. Our second point, moving out. The glory of the Lord moved out of the temple. Wait, what? The glory of the Lord moved out of the temple. Chapter 10, look at verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. Here's that throne chariot again. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. And he went in before my eyes, verse four, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the thresholds of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. This is a vision that Ezekiel is seeing. So it's not strict reality that we know of, but in prophetic form, he sees what God sees, just how bad it is and worse than we could know. God sees what is done in secret and he's out of here. What is this glory? It's the Shekinah glory It's God's tangible presence on earth, dwelling with his people. This glory was present with the Israelites in the wilderness in spite of their sin. Remember Moses with his shining face? He had to wear a veil when he'd been with the glory of the Lord or the people would freak out. Remember the massive ceremony that Solomon had when the temple was finished? Look at 2 Chronicles 7, 1-6. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the, to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That is a whole lot of livestock. Can you imagine the blood? Why does there need to be sacrifice? Why blood? It symbolizes the people's need for atonement for the forgiveness of their sins, washing away all of that guilt that they have because we, they are sinners. God used this as a visual display for the people so they could know that they're sinners, that they could repent and they could come back to God. When God descended on Solomon's temple, it was a big deal. And now he's leaving that temple. When we forget that we are sinners and we don't repent, We thus further move away from God and we spiral downhill like a mad fiend. But this doesn't happen overnight, right? God said it about Sodom and Gomorrah in the times of Abraham. It had reached its full measure of sin. And so too the Canaanites in Joshua's time of the conquest. Their sins had reached the full measure. And now Israel, God's people and the land given by God, says their sin is has reached its full measure. They've reached rock bottom. This is why God left the temple. One commentator wrote, "...the Lord waits long to be gracious, as if he knew not how to smite. He smites at last as if he knew not how to pity. When judgment fell on Canaan, it was swift, inexorable, completely lacking in pity." Now the new Canaanites, Israel, will experience the same inexorable wrath of God. We balk against this view of God. It might be why you've had trouble struggling, maybe even with reading the Old Testament. This is the same God of the Old and the New Testaments. In the New Testament, the object of God's wrath upon whom his wrath poured out, his son, Jesus, not us, not his people, the New Testament is even more grisly than we can imagine, because all of his wrath fell on one person, one man. We often think that God's not as bad now as he was in the Old Testament, but it's not true. He's consistent. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And if we take that stance that God was kinder in the New Testament, then we miss Just how much his total, full, complete wrath poured out on his son, Jesus, for my sins, for your sins, for all the sins of his people throughout time, past, present, now, and for far, far, far into the future. This wrath caused earthquakes, the sun to hide its face, the curtain of the temple tore in two from top to bottom, Jesus on the cross. So many have missed him. I beg you not to miss him. Jesus, God's son, was the way the father had to release his wrath that had been building since Adam and Eve in the garden disobeying him. So our task now is to preach the gospel to all nations, to win our enemies over with deeds of kindness, of love, of hope, because the last final judgment day is coming. One day this will happen. Folks will be taking their kids to school, doing some last-minute shopping maybe planning a trip to the lake and the lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of god 1st Thessalonians 4:16 those spared on that final judgment day will be like ezekiel's remnant right who sigh and mourn over the abominations that surround them that's from chapter 9 who've been marked with the name of the lamb and of his father. For the rest of the people of this world, God says it's gonna be nothing but eternal fire. So if you're wondering where the term fire and brimstone came from uh, in this relationship with preaching and preachers, I think this is one spot for sure, right? It's a warning. It's also a plea. God is slow to anger, slow to wrath, but his slowness, his patience will not last forever. So he says, come to Jesus, repent, repent, and believe. I went to Israel in June with the trip from the church. Uh, We're going again in a couple of years, and I highly recommend uh, that you go. It will truly change how you read the Bible, how you understand the people of the Bible, the stories, and the places. Each night, uh, we were in Jerusalem. A group would go to the western, the Wailing Wall. Uh, It's part of that exposed temple mount. That portion dates from the second temple period. What's left of the retaining Wall uh, from over 2,000 years ago. And that was the the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, right, by the Romans. So that wall there in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem is the most holy, sacred site of Judaism. The Temple Mount is controlled by Muslims. The Gold Dome of the Rock, that mosque is the famous picture that you, you saw up there. So the Jewish folks have that wall. Well, day and night, there are Jewish folks at that wall praying. What I noticed this time in Israel was a sense of worship there at that wall. And it was sad, thinking about those highly orthodox Jewish men and women praying that Yahweh would return and give them their temple back. It was sad, it was hard to watch. Imagining the Jewish people reading Ezekiel's book of prophecy and watching the glory of the Lord leave the temple. Then Ezekiel has another vision in chapters 40 to 48. You'll get there. Don't worry about that. But it's of a new temple. It's much bigger than the first and second temples that were built. All that to say, if God is not bound to the temple, he's not bound to that wall. And the people and their idolatry moved into the temple. It finally triggered God's glory, and he moved out of the temple. It was shocking. But then something that no one even Dreamed to think would happen something glorious, something amazing. It was God moving with his people. Third point God himself moved to Babylon to be with his people, those same people who rejected him again and again. Chapter 11, verse 1 The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men, princes of the people. And he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in the city. Verse five, and the spirit of the Lord fell upon me. And he said to me, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. He says it again in verse 12, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Watch for this Phrase. This is the theme of Ezekiel. 72 times it's reiterated, chapter after chapter. It's what he wants us to know. Him. The text goes on. For you have not walked in my statutes nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass... While I was prophesying that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel feels like there's not many folks left. On to verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them from far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the, the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary to them. This is a precious statement. Though I have been a sanctuary to them. He is intimate with us. It goes on. For a while in the countries where they have gone, verse 17, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you a land of Israel. And, then, and when they come there they will remove it from all of its detestable things and its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove that heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is big time. This is what it's going to take to get us to love and follow the Lord. A new spirit within us. One is that is not natural to us and God putting it in there, our heart of stone that has kept us running to idols, running from God for millennia. That stone is gone in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And we are new. Verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's the covenant formula. Always look for that in Scripture, God's promise to you and me, his children, it's the way it's going to be, and he will ensure that state forever. Verse 21. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God moved out of the temple and slowly made his way to the Mount of Olives and then further east to Babylon. God moved to be with his sinful, untrusting, ungrateful, rebellious, wicked, much-loved people. Chapter 11 was a surprise find if you were reading along after chapters 8 through 10. But he's told us that he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He might have to discipline us as any loving father would do, but he never casts us out away from him. And in this case, when he sent them into exile, he went with them, the exiled God. Exile is designed to produce God's people pure and holy, obedient to him and his word with delight not out of duty. Have you seen the movie, The Rescue? It's the 2021 National Geographic film, more of a documentary. It tells the story of the 12 boys, ages 11 to 16, and their soccer coach who were trapped deep into the flooded cave system in northern Thailand in 2018. Monsoon season came about a month early on this, and the team entered the cave In July 23rd, nope, excuse me, June 23rd, 2018, they made no contact with these boys until the 2nd of July. What seemed to be an impossible rescue became a reality. A massive team effort from the Royal Thai Navy SEALs, the U.S. Air Force Special Tactics Division, plus loads of others. But it was these normal cave divers and their expertise who would dive the boys to safety these guys do this kind of thing on the weekend. British divers with so much experience and knowledge in this specific subterranean adventure that no one else on earth knew what they did and how they would do it. But they were not alone. It took 10,000 people to pull this off with pumping more than 1 billion liters of water out of that cave system. Finding the boys ended up being the easy Part. They gave them food. They had them wait for their return. It took six hours to swim the 1.6 miles from the cave entrance to the boys. The smallest place that they had to go to was about 15 inches by 28 inches. They realized that they would not be able to dive the boys out, they'd panic. So they had a Buddy Diver, I guess you'd officially call him, uh, who was an anesthesiologist to figure it out. And the final rescue plan would be to sedate them and swim them out unconscious. Just imagine that if that was your child. It was like plan J, right? That was, they tried everything. The boys went in to the cave on the 23rd of June, were located on the 2nd of July, rescued between the 8th and the 10th of July, all safe. Two soldiers died, but the boys were rescued safely. The courage and compassion the rescuers had was overwhelming. I bawled my way through the film. What if God cared for you that much? What if? What if all he did for you To rescue you is far greater than this rescue in Thailand. More complicated, more on the line. That's what he did. Because of our sin, he left the temple. He moved out. Because of his love for us, he moved with us to where he sent the Israelites. And just like Jesus left his father's side in heaven to come be with us on earth, this movement in Ezekiel was signaling what would come to be. The church is the bride of Christ. His spirit indwells his followers. We are new creation. God does not live in a house any longer. Not this building, not any other building. His spirit lives in you and me. We are the church. The end of Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. I think Ezekiel is seeing what God is showing him. This new vision, this new city. Where the temple is the Lord. There's no temple building. He's far bigger than that, and the city contains all of God's people. Ezekiel's vision, this is Edmund Clowney, is precisely a vision of a heavenly truth that found its earthly realization in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means, rather, Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. What if what We are seeing this movement in chapters 8 to 11. is about God doing something new, moving with his people in their true need. God really cares. He knows you're a sinner. That's why he came. Tell him what you're thinking and feeling, your doubts, your fears. You can yell at him. He can take it. He's experienced a whole lot of junk from us sinners over the millennia. I think you will find him surprisingly kind and loving, and patient, and faithful to you? Where is a space that you feel God could never invade in your heart, in your mind, in your actions? Where is somewhere that you feel God would never go with you? That that deep, narrow slot in the cave system that is your heart. He's already there. Reach out, feel around. (laughs) You'll bump into him. You may have done a lot of really terrible things in your life. I get that. But nothing is beyond the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Come to him. Let your guard down. Take up his word, his promises, his movement. Watch it. How that promise to us in that he will be our God. We will be his people. We will know that he is the Lord. Y'all, there's a God. He is king. He's coming back we will know tears no longer, or sorrow, or sadness, pain, or death, sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. One day, we live like we can't wait to see that one day with all of our friends, with all of our family, with our enemies, (laughs) with our neighbors, with folks that you have woefully mistreated and looked down upon. We will all be there together, forgiven, loved, resting forever. Move to your king, move to your savior, move to the lover of your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is, it's deep, it's heavy, but we trust you that you've put it there for us to mine into it, to dig down and to see what you have for us therein. Lord, we don't take it lightly. We take it with hope, but we know that you're doing a work in us, so don't leave us. Don't forsake us like you've said that you <laughs> would never do. Lord, we want to know you. We need to know you. Lord, help us because we're confused. We're stragglers. We're sinners. Lord, show us grace. Show us mercy. <laughs> you are the one true God, and we can love you all the days of our lives.